We are in Psalm 111 tonight. Psalm 111 as we continue marching through the Psalms. Psalm 111. Good to see you all. It is not a long one. Ten verses. It probably should have had more verses. I'll explain that in just a minute. But uh, ten verses. Let me read it to you. Psalm 111. Praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them who have pleasure therein. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endureth forever. He hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He hath given meat, and the word meat uh, is a generic term for food, and here probably a better translation would be spoil or a portion. Portion might be the best word. He hath given a portion unto them who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He hath shown his people the power of his works that he may give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He hath sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endures forever. This is a psalm that is set in a series of three that all begins with the phrase, Praise ye the Lord, which is, of course, hallelujah. That's what that means. And uh, so it is the first of these. It is obviously designed to be somewhat of a call to worship, that you uh, call on God's people to praise his name. It is an alphabetical psalm. So is the next one, Psalm 112. And what that means, it's very obscure in English, but it means that in actuality, uh, each phrase of this psalm begins with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. We have what? 28? Aleph, Bet. Gimel. Do we have 28? Yeah, well, you know. Sue and me, we, we have a few extra, yeah. I didn't major in English. <laughs> I flunked English. <laughs> I flunked first grade, I think. <laughs> 26, okay. I'm so used to working in other places. Anyway, in Hebrew, you only got 22. Hey, it's a snap. Easy language, yeah. Aleph, Bet, Gamal, you've got all these letters, and what is happening here is that the first sentence starts with Aleph, the second with Bet, the third with Gamal, and, and so forth, down through the 24, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, obviously, we look at this, and we only got 10 verses, and that is why if we were really dividing this out, and, and you may notice that some of these verses seem like they're joining sort of thoughts that ought to be separated, but that's why. Uh, Some of these verses, most of these verses, really should be two verses, and they read that way in the Hebrew. 
So if you have an alphabetical psalm like that, it would, for us it would be like the first verse starts with A, the second B, so forth, down all the way to Z. Um, why would you think you would write something like that? What? Uh, well, yeah, I think everybody's voicing the same thing. This, this is an aid to memorization, and it would be a learning tool. If I'm teaching a child how to write, uh, the, learn the alphabet, this is a good way of doing it to make the alphabet. You know, we have Psalms, well, it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, this becomes like a learning tool whereby a child could learn the Hebrew alphabet by memorizing this psalm. And so this one is that way. Psalm 112 is that way. There have been some uh, earlier. We will learn that Psalm 119, the big long one, has each section is alphabetical. And there's 22 sections of Psalm 119. So this one's a little simpler. Uh, each half or like I say, there's really 22 divisions here instead of 10, and each phrase starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In the first, uh, you might have, did you notice a word that just kept popping up over and over again as we were reading this psalm? Take a look at it. A lot of times, Bible, to understand the Bible, you want to look for words that are being pronounced, not pronounced by uttered, but they are pronounced in their uh, frequency works. It is a psalm extolling the works of God. And we'll talk about why in just a minute. We're being called upon to study His works. The prologue in verses 1 and 2 uh, tells us that we are to praise Him uh, in the assembly of the upright. The word assembly, there's probably a mistranslation. It's more like a group, a council the council of the upright. In other words, the, the little group and then in the big congregation. In other words, we're to praise Him in every circumstance. And then notice in verse 2, the works of the Lord are great and sought out of all them who have pleasure therein. It is a psalm that is directing our attention to the works of God and especially to those people who take pleasure in studying God's works. Now, let's think about that a minute. There are things, uh, I meant to bring the DeSoto magazine that we get here in DeSoto County. Uh, Chuck French has a, I mean, they did a really nice bang-up article on him and his antique cars. And so if you get, the only problem, they've got Alan married to Jennifer. Uh, we may have to have a little talk with them. But anyway, uh, but outside of that, it's a, it's a wonderful article and got some pictures of uh, Chuck's the Rolls Royce that he's got was about a, what, a 1926, very, very rare thing. And uh, anyway, they did a bang-up article. And I was just thinking about Chuck as I was uh, preparing this of how infatuated he is with old cars. And he has cars all the way back to 1906. Um, he thinks anything, you know, if it's not older than about 1940, it's just a used car. Uh, he didn't collect anything younger than that. But the fact is, is that he has a delight in these things, in studying them and looking at how they're made, the mechanics of it all. He's just really infatuated. He loves to study that. Now, I, I would like to see them. I don't, outside of the ones he's brought up here, I guess those are the only ones I've ever seen. 
but I'm not as uh, immersed in that kind of thing as he is, obviously. But notice here that all of us who are the people of God have a vested interest in studying what God has done, his, his works. And, of course, the, the reason is that from God's works, we can deduce certain traits of his character, of his personality, if you will. Uh, I was thinking, again, there are certain things that you, no doubt, have in your home, we have them in our home, that are important to us. Uh, for instance, you may have a trophy case with the uh, trophies the, that your kids have won at school or races and well, maybe not. <laughs> I don't know how athletic some of you are. But anyway, or perhaps ribbons that they have won, achievements. And, and those things are important to you uh, because they are mementos. They're reminders of what your child perhaps have done. Or perhaps you have pictures. We have a couple of pictures in my home that were painted by people very, uh, very close to me uh, out in Wyoming. And uh, they may not mean anything to anybody else. Somebody else may look at them and say, okay, so what? But to me, they're very important because I am connected through the work to the author. And there is a connection, isn't there, between, uh, let's say some of you guys, uh, Tom, you have people that work for you. And can you tell certain traits about the person from the type and quality of the work they turn in? If, if they turn in sloppy work, that's typically an indication that they're sloppy people. They're, in other words, if they're undisciplined in their work, they're probably undisciplined in their lifestyle. We can, we can pick up certain characteristics. You may have seen that there was a, uh, the Metropolitan Museum in New York City got a hold of a collection of what, 78 cube, works of cubism. Cubism is like Picasso and all that stuff. I'm sure you're all art affectionados like me. Uh, what got my eye was that they're worth about a billion dollars. I don't know much about art appreciation. I appreciate money. <laughs> I understand that end of it. But notice there are people who will study paintings. They will study the brush strokes of the artist. I mean, that, that minute to see how did they do this. They, will, they are able to detect a forgery because they, they are so acquainted with the way the author does what they do, that they almost know what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. So that's the kind of thing we're looking at here, is that the works of God sort of betray his personality as we trace his fingerprints on his works. Now, what do we deduce about God's works? Well, verse 3 tells us several characteristics, that they're honorable and glorious. And by honorable and glorious, we mean they're splendorous. They're, they're wonderful. They're, uh, and, and there are a lot of things. I think about a painting hanging in a museum. You say, well, what's it good for? You know, I can't eat it. Can't, uh, can't play ball with it or, or whatever. What, what, you just look at it. But there's a certain sense in which some works are just, just wonderful. And the works of God. I was thinking today about a sunset. You know, God didn't have to make it that pretty. Could have just had the sun go down, that's it. A flower. Everything's in bloom right now. That's why I'm so stopped up. 
but the flowering of the grass and of the weeds, all the blooming going on. You know, Jesus makes reference to Solomon. His glory was not ordained like that. He didn't have to do that. You just think of the beauteous sights that God has placed on this planet, the Grand Canyon, the Grand Tetons, uh, these mountains and valleys and so forth, the spectacles that are there and all. And you say, what, what's good, what good are they? I mean, the Grand Canyon is just a big hole in the ground. Yeah, but what a hole. And how many people go to just stand and stare at that big hole in the ground because it's just so glorious. And so that's the first thing, the first category of his works. And, uh, and, and then notice how the two halves of verse 3 don't seem to go together. His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endures forever. Uh, it's like, wait a minute, this is like A and B, and that's because of this alphabetical psalm. That's really, there's two phrases going on. But notice that we are drawing a characteristic of God in the second half of the verse from His works in the first half of the verse. His works are glorious and honorable and so forth, and then what we're to draw from that is the fact that His righteousness endureth forever. We see the same uh, in, in, in verse 4, that he has made his wonderful works to be remembered. We are to investigate. We're to study his works. Well, I, let me get through this and we'll make a few comments here. Notice in the last half of verse 4, we have a nec- the next category of the type of God's works. And again, it's like the new category begins in the middle of a verse, but that's because this is actually in Hebrew. Okay, you know by now. What's going on? That it's his works of grace and compassion. Now notice the first category in verse three were honorable and glorious, splendorous, and so forth. Here the work is his grace and his compassion. Have you ever looked around and said, you know, that's that's a compassionate thing God did? What would you look at in the works of God and say that's that's merciful? How about the rain? How about the sunshine? How about the fact that when you go to take a big gulp of air, you got some? How about atmospheric pressure? That's my favorite one. Nobody ever gives God thanks for atmospheric pressure, but if it wasn't for it, our blood would boil away in our veins. That God has designed the planet in such gravity. Hey, it's not just a good idea, it's the law. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> gravity is great. <laughs> One guy said gravity sucks. He said it's a good thing too. <laughs> we just go floating off into space. <laughs> it uh, it holds us down. It's a good good thing. Uh, so and notice in connection with that is verse five, that first phrase there that he's given a portion. That means your food, your sustenance, your what you need to live. He's given a a portion to those who fear him, and he will ever be mindful of his covenant. This is, this is his mercy, his compassion. He didn't have to enter into a covenant with us. Um, but out of mercy and grace, he has. And then notice the third category. He has shown his people the power of his works in verse 6. In other words, we've had his glorious works. We've had his merciful works. Now we see his power revealed. The idea is, is that he is not just a God of want to, God of good intention. Uh, he really would like to bless you, but he just can't. You know, he ran out of money, doesn't have enough power, fell asleep, you know, whatever. Uh, this is a God who is able to deliver you know, on his promises. And notice 
the one mentioned here is that he has given Israel uh, the heritage of the heathen. In other words, he gave them a nation, a land, that originally belonged to somebody else. He took it away from them and gave it to them. And this is an, uh, one of the examples of his power. Um, so what that's telling us is that then it is safe to trust in the promises of God. If he was a God of good intention but didn't have enough power, uh, you can't count on him. I mean, you know, if you're a million dollars in debt, and you say, Brother Mark, don't you love me? Oh, yeah, I love you. Can't you help me? No. <laughs> I, much as I might want to, I, I can't. I don't have the ability. I don't have the means. God has the ability and the means and the willingness. And therefore, you can trust Him. That's why all His commandments or uh, works or verity and judgment, His commandments are sure. Notice the work is steadfast, so His commandment is steadfast. See how we're drawing conclusions about God from looking at His works. Uh, notice in verse 8, just like His works are steadfast, so in verse 8, uh, His commandments stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. Um, there is in creation uh, the precision of His works that is being drawn, our attention being drawn to. Uh, this may not fascinate you, but me, uh, being once at least aspiring to be a scientist, um, I remember the first time it hit me, the, the fact that you can describe creation with mathematical equations. That, that is an astounding thing. The fact that we can take a mathematical formula, S equals 16T squared, and we can drop a ball off the roof of this building and time how long it takes to hit the ground, and we can figure out the distance. In fact, we can determine the position of that ball. You tell me the time, I can tell you where that ball will be in its flight between when we drop it and when it hits the ground. I don't have to get a ruler out there. I just got to know. You just got to give me a stopwatch. Tell me how much time. I'll tell you where that ball's going to be. Now, that's in the absence of atmosphere and in the vacuum, of course. But you understand, have you ever thought about what a remarkable thing that is? That this world can be described in terms of mathematical engineering? You do this all the time, don't you? Um, Einstein was an interesting guy. Um, he determined mathematically the general theory of relativity, which one of the implications of the general theory of relativity... Let me see if, how, how to explain this. You understand that what, what Einstein had learned from others, from experiments, is that the speed of light is constant, 186,000 miles a second in a vacuum. And you can be going 1,000 miles. For instance, if you're headed towards me in a car 100 miles an hour and I'm headed towards you in a car 100 miles an hour, how fast are you really approaching me? 200 miles an hour, right? If I were sitting still, that's what it would appear to be. The problem is, is with the speed of light, I can be going, say, in this direction at half the speed of light 
And when I measure the speed of light coming from the other direction, it's still 186,000 miles a second. If I measure the speed of light coming behind me, it's still 186,000 miles a second. No matter how fast I'm going, in whatever direction, if I measure the speed of light in the direction I'm, that's coming to me from this way, it's the same as the direction light from the other side. Now, have you ever thought about the implications of that? What Einstein realized is that means space has to shrink and expand. The only way, I mean, speed is nothing but distance over time, and so if the speed never changes, then the distance has to change. Y'all got that glassy look on your face. But what he's saying is, is that then space is not constant. Speed of light's constant. So space has to change. It has to shrink and compress. And what he realized in the general theory is that gravity, what looks like gravity, the law, holds us down, is nothing more than space-time being warped around a massive object. There's really not a force drawing you or holding you. It's that space gets warped. Okay, until... But anyway, the amazing thing was that he could figure this out with mathematics and not only figure it out, but tell you how to test it. There was going to be this eclipse, solar eclipse down in Brazil, and said, well, here's the way to test it. He said, all you got to do is said, if I'm right, starlight will bend around the sun. The sun being a massive object will warp space-time and light will not come straight at us. It will bend around it. So the way you test it is to go down there in the middle of a solar eclipse and take a look where the stars are supposed to be when you're not having an eclipse and then look at where the stars are when you are and you're going to see he told them exactly how much movement, how much deviation the stars would move from where they ought to be. Well, lo and behold, Lord Eddington of the Royal Astronomical Society heads down to Brazil with his team and sure enough, sends back word. They asked Einstein, what, what are you, what's going to happen if Lord Eddington's results uh, don't agree? And he says, I just feel sorry for the poor Lord because he would have got it wrong. In other words, Einstein saying, I don't care. The math says this. Mathematically, he knew what the result was, and we have now proved to him. Of course, their, their method is pretty primitive. Uh, variation was, was large. But, but the point, is that not an astounding thing that this universe can be described in terms of mathematical equations? And you can figure out something like that by looking at the math. Before you ever go test it, before you, he can tell them, this is what you're going to find before they ever go down there. In fact, Niels Bohr, I've mentioned him, he went down there and Einstein said if he was really a physicist, he wouldn't have to make the trip. Trust the math. If he's really a physicist, <laughs> that's how confident he was in the equations that describe this universe. Do you realize that if this universe is just the result of random chance, we would expect never to be able to describe it in mathematical equations. Or the mathematical equation that works over here is not going to work over here. Or the one that worked yesterday is not going to work tomorrow. 
You understand that if this is just the result of random process, you don't expect to see order, law, but this universe is an orderly arrangement, describable by math. That, you, you've seen the super collider over in Europe, CERN. It's not the big one. The big one's going to be in Texas, but ran out of money. Between the money and fire ants, that was the problem with the super collider. But anyway, the CERN over here in Europe, next best thing. And uh, again, you have physicists predicting the Higgs boson particle, predicting it on the basis of mathematics. They think they found it. But again, do you realize how astounding that is? Just how remarkable it is that this world is designed like that, that there is a precision. And that's what this psalm is talking about, that that then... If that's true of the work of God, how much more true is it of the God of the work? That this God who has created such a universe then himself is steadfast and sure and righteous and steady as a rock because the laws that describe his work are like that. You see the connection there. And so we come to these last two verses. And... uh, This is the payoff, is that he has sent redemption to his people. He's commanded his covenant forever, and holy and reverend is his name. The God who is like that is the one who has redeemed us, the one who has made covenant with us, the one who is holy and reverend. I hate being called a reverend. Generally, people say, what what do you want to be called? I say, Mark, uh, I want to give you, okay, pastor, don't call me reverend. I am not to be reverenced. Uh, God is. And notice what this is saying is that he is holy and reverend. He is in a class by himself. He is unique. There is no other being like our God. And so it follows then, if you want to understand this world, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where you start. This is elementary school. First of all, fear God. You say, what do you mean fear God? Be scared of Him? Well, no, but respect Him. Honor Him. Worship Him. Adore Him. Study Him. Because everything else flows out of that. We don't realize it, but there was a time when science was in such an elementary state that uh, they had no clue. These things we call laws whether regular or not, whether you can depend on them, count on them. Uh, You had men, Christian men, like Sir Isaac Newton and others, who because of their belief in God, deduce certain things about science. Rather than their trust in God, their religion destroying science, which is what we're constantly being told today, it was the fact of their religion that gave them the confidence that this universe then could be studied and understood. Because they understood God who had made it. Interesting way of looking at it. So, a good understanding of all they that do His commandments, His praise endures forever. All right. Uh, if the fear of God is the, or the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that explains why we're so stupid. Mm-hmm. And boy, our culture, uh, this postmodern culture, I, 
I, I think I've lived to see it all. And then something else happens. A woman files suit against her abortionist doctor because the child lived. I'm thinking, in my lifetime, I have seen a complete flip-flop on the understanding of the sacredness of life. We redefine marriage as if marriage needed redefining. <laughs> you think, wait a minute, who didn't know what it was? You know, that's what I want to ask. Who, who needs definition? Who needs to go to a dictionary and look it up? Is it this self-evident? Hasn't human history told you what marriage is? Uh, do, you, do you understand you say, how in the world could people be so foolish? Well, here's why. You turn away from God. Because it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. Well, I'll get off my soapbox. Any other, y'all see anything to add to this? I mean, I, there's a lot of things we can say. Yeah, John? Well, Einstein believed in God. He was a Jew, um, had a Jewish understanding of God. Uh, in fact, his, his hesitation with quantum mechanics, he had a famous statement that said, God doesn't, play, doesn't roll dice. Uh, the idea of quantum mechanics is when you get on subatomic level, you can't say anything's here or there. You say it's the probability of it being here and there. And so he never was at peace with quantum mechanics on that basis because of his understanding of God. But yeah, you're right. You can be brilliant in certain areas and then be an utter fool in your personal life. Boy, we have numbers of examples of that among brilliant people who are very foolish when it comes to how they conduct themselves on this planet. Any other... We had <clears throat> several categories of God's works. His glorious works. His compassionate works. Powerful works. Anything you can think of that fits one of those categories? That y'all all worked out. <laughs> uh, Caleb, you're over there. Y'all are grinding camshafts. Yeah. Okay. What um, What would you deduce if we, in other words, if I get a camshaft? And I look at it. Um, first of all, I'm assuming I would not look at that camshaft and say, you know, isn't it interesting how this thing formed? I mean, this thing was just laying there in the dirt and it came up like this. Would you ever be tempted to think that that just happened? When you know the amount of work that has to go into shaping it, polishing it, how how close are your tolerances? half a thousandth of an inch. So the amount of design, the amount, and, and somebody had to draw that thing up, right? Somebody had to think it up, and then you've got to build it to that close of a specification. And I'm 
I would deduce that you look at something like that and there are certain conclusions you can make about the wisdom of the person that designed it, the discipline of the person that polished it to that kind of precision, but the precisions you're talking about are nothing compared to the precisions that God has put into this universe, into the design. Just the, the, the ratio of the charge of an uh, electron to a proton, the tolerance is so precise. And if it wasn't that, it wouldn't work. So even the tolerances, the precision that you deal with are nothing compared to what we see out here in the universe. You'd have to say you're obsessed with this. I mean, you know, in a sense, you're... You, 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 I mean, to me, a half an inch, that's close enough. I mean, you know, that's the way I do things. But you can't do that. You've got to be obsessed with it. Well, God is obsessed with the precision of His universe. That's, yeah, Steve? Oh, man. If you took our cell... I, I, the thought hit me today walking down the road. I got a lot of thought in walking. Um, that do you realize every cell in your body has the information for the entire you in it? Now, it doesn't mean that we can take any one of those cells and make you. Uh, that's why stem cells are so important because they can, you know, go in any way. But the information that makes you, in other words, in the human cell, you've got hardware and software. You've got hardware, that's the cell. You've got software, that's the DNA. And every cell in your body has the DNA in it that describes you. Every one of them. The billions of them. There's billions of copies of this DNA in each one of those cells. And that DNA, it works like a computer software program that tells that cell how to function. And if you took it away, the cell wouldn't know. It'd be like your computer without any software in it. It'd be just a brick, paperweight. Or if you had the DNA but you didn't have the cell, it'd be like a software program but no computer to run it on. So you realize that you can't design one and then design the other. You've got to have both of them going at the same time for it to work. So you've got a real complex thing here. How did this evolve? Not only does, if you believe in evolution, not only did the DNA have to evolve, the information, the software, and I'm very well aware of what happens when you make a mistake in the software. It's hard, hard to get my software programs evolving I can usually, when I make a mistake, it means they quit working. They don't start working better. Okay? I understand that much. But you would have to have both the software program evolving and the hardware, the cell itself, evolving because they've both got to be functional at the same time for it to work. And your cell, if we were to blow it up about a billion times and put it out in your backyard, would look like an automated factory. And what we call proteins are like pieces of equipment that... RNA comes off the DNA and runs through this thing and tells it how to assemble the stuff your body needs. And it's all happening. And then in about half a second, it can make a split in two and make two instead of one. And if you had something like that in your backyard, you'd never, ever be tempted to say, this thing just happened. The amount of design and the, the information. I, I have an interesting book at home one of these creationist books called In the Beginning, there was information. Because that's what's critical to life. Information. Without the software, 
Okay, how many sales you got? They won't work. You got to have the instructions. God put the instruction in the sale. It's we we are just fearfully and wonderfully made. All right. Well, I'll get off my soapbox. Charles, you trying to? I, I, you're scratching your head. Okay. <laughs> well, it just explains lots of things, and no wonder, no wonder we see that once you sever the yourself whether yourself personally or your culture or whatever, your society from this God who is ordered, sure, steadfast, then you're just adrift. It's, uh, it's like adrift on a sea of subjectivity, what, what feels right. And there are no more morals, no more right and wrong. Right and wrong is whatever you want it to be. And so, no wonder. 